This morning we're going to look at God's response to fasting. God's response to fasting. We're just looking at the first 13 verses of Daniel chapter 10. We're looking at the introductory part of the final revelation that is recorded in the book of Daniel and which occupies the the last three chapters of this book. But as I say, today we're just going to look at the introduction to this final prophecy. First of all, we can see that Daniel was praying and fasting. Look again at verses, I'm not going to read the whole thing again, but look at verses 1 to 4. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. That's the pagan name that was given to him by the Babylonians. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth. Neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, which is Hidikil. Right, it will stop there. This is where he... The, he this at this point he has a, a revelation from God, but uh, it's interesting to note actually that verse four in the four and twentieth day of the first month, as I was by the side of the great river, so he'd been praying and fasting, abstaining from certain things for three weeks, and then on the four and twentieth day of the first month, that takes us to the end of the annual Passover feast and Tabernacles, Feast of Tabernacles, doesn't it? That annual event every year, I don't know, maybe Daniel had been remembering that while he was praying and fasting and, and the Jews, wherever they were, they'd been observing that annual feast of Passover, remembering when God brought them deliverance from Egypt all those years before. Uh, all those years, let me see now, um, 500, no, a thousand years before, about a thousand years earlier, when God had brought deliverance from Egypt and uh, the destroyer passed over the houses that were daubed with blood, the houses of the Israelites, and all the others were destroyed. And then God took the Israelites away from Egypt, he opened up the Red Sea for them and made it as a corridor for them to pass through. And then the Red Sea closed closed upon Pharaoh and his army that was pursuing the Israelites and they were all destroyed. The enemy was destroyed in the Red Sea. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing here. But by this time, the Jews had been given permission by their Medo-Persian rulers to rebuild the city, to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. But Daniel did not go. That can be seen in verse 4 there. Where was Daniel? He was at the side of the great river, which is Hidikel. Well, that's not in Jerusalem. 
as I say, the decree had been given, the Jews or that first lot of Jews had gone off to Jerusalem to rebuild the place. Daniel was there at the the side of the river Hiddekel, which is the river Tigris. Now, just looking at that on, on the map, the Tigris is nowhere near Jerusalem. It passes through modern day Turkey and Iraq. So Daniel didn't go. He stayed behind when the decree was given to the Jews, go and rebuild your city, go and rebuild your temple. Daniel didn't go. But there's a good reason for that. It needs to be appreciated that by then, Daniel was an old man. He was well into his 80s, approaching 90 perhaps. As such, he was far too old to make that journey back to Jerusalem and certainly far too old to start doing all that heavy work rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the city. That 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 would be left to the younger men. That doesn't mean to say that he had distanced or separated himself from Jerusalem after almost a lifetime in exile. Don't imagine for one moment that Daniel had forgotten all about Jerusalem and the temple. For one thing, we need to remember that sometime earlier, at a time when no one was allowed to ask anything of any god or any man for 30 days, Daniel was thrown into a lion's den because he was seen praying to God in his house with the windows open towards Jerusalem. Also in chapter 9 we're told that Daniel, having read the prophecy of Jeremiah which predicted um, that the Babylonian captivity would last for 70 years, Daniel set his face unto the Lord God to seek by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And in that prayer in chapter 9, Daniel confessed the sins of the Jewish people. He confessed his own sins. And with reference to the temple in Jerusalem, Daniel asked the Lord to cause his face to shine on his sanctuary, which was desolate. That's a reference to the temple in Jerusalem, it was desolate. By now, a decree had been, as I say, had been issued to rebuild Jerusalem and you would have thought that Daniel would have been rejoicing. At last, at last that work is taking place to rebuild the temple and Jerusalem. So you would have thought he would have been rejoicing over God's gracious answer to prayer, to his prayer back in chapter 9. But that clearly was not the case, as as can be seen in verses 2 and 3. With all that abstaining from eating pleasant bread and meat, and abstaining from drinking wine. So, what was wrong with Daniel? Why was he so miserable? Why was he so mournful, do you think? We're not told in this passage, but what can be deduced elsewhere in the book of Ezra, is that of the 42,000 Jews who initially returned to Jerusalem under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the governor of the Jews, and also Joshua, the high priest, those 42,000 or so Jews, that initial party that went back to Jerusalem, they met with a lot of opposition from the Samaritans, people who had settled in Jerusalem 
during that 70 years when um, the Jews were in exile. The Samaritans had settled there and then finally after 70 years when the Jews returned to Jerusalem to rebuild the place, the Samaritans, they interfered quite considerably. Whatever it was that Daniel was sad about, whether it was the interference by the Samaritans or whatever, it was serious enough for him to fast for three weeks. Also, he refrained from refreshing himself during that time. I suspect that there are many Christians who are inclined to consign self-denial and fasting to the scrap heap of history in our New Testament age. And they write those things off, fasting and so on, as legalistic. It's not something that we need to do anymore. Perhaps such people ought to consider the following. There's nothing in the Bible to suggest that fasting would become obsolete. In fact, there was a time when the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ were unable to cast out a deaf and dumb spirit from someone and they asked Jesus why it was that they were unable to do so. And Jesus said to them, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Indeed, Jesus taught his disciples the following about fasting. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 through to 18, he said, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. They want everyone to know about it. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward, but thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret. And thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Are we to imagine that the teaching from Jesus about fasting was only relevant until the cross, but not after the cross? I don't really think so. And even the Lord Jesus Christ fasted over a period of 40 days and 40 nights when he was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Far from being obsolete, you can think of fasting as a time of leaning your entire weight upon God. It's not something that you have to do. If you had to do it, then maybe that would be legalistic. But this is not something that you have to do. It's something that you might want to do. Lean your entire weight upon God when you fast. Perhaps in times of sorrow or as a mark of repentance before God. As has already been seen in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples, fasting ought to be a private matter between you and God. It should not be seen as a substitute for godly living and it's no good having a quick fast to make up for something sinful that you've done. Fasting and prayer will only ever be acceptable to God 
if they are mixed with saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Your acceptance before God and your everlasting salvation is and always will be in Christ and his achievements are most most certainly not in your fasting. What we have next in our passage is an appearance of a heavenly person in verses 5 through to 9. These verses give a description of a certain man who came to Daniel and only, only Daniel saw him. Others who were with Daniel fled and they hid themselves. And what Daniel saw when he had that visit caused him to lose all his strength and to fall into a deep sleep. Now this was interesting when I was preparing this because, surprise, surprise, the commentators weren't in agreement on this one. So once again I was left having to figure out who made most sense out of the commentators when I was looking at the passage and then make a decision. Some, but by no means all, of the Bible commentators, including one of my favourite Bible commentators, that didn't make it easy for me, claim that Daniel saw the pre-incarnate Son of God. And they point out that the description of the heavenly person in verses 5 and 6 is very similar to a description of the Son of God that was given by the Apostle John, who had a vision... And the details of it are recorded in Revelation chapter 1. In your own time, you can look at the description that we have of the heavenly person in our passage here, in Daniel chapter 10, and and, and compare it. Flick over the pages and compare it with what you read in Revelation chapter 1. We know that Revelation chapter 1 is most certainly a description of the Son of God. We're told as much, that it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was dead and uh, who was alive, he, he was dead and behold, he is alive forevermore. The Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We're not told that uh, in this passage of Daniel and it is a similar description but as I say, it's not the same Maybe I'm being picky here, I don't know. There are differences, such as the man whom Daniel saw had the voice of a multitude. He had the voice of a multitude. You can see that in verse 6. Presumably that means the voice of many people, a multitude of people. Whereas in the Apostle John's vision in Revelation chapter 1, The voice of the Son of God was as the sound of many waters. It's different. Whilst on the subject of the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ, he once gave the following command to a dead man by the name of Lazarus. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus, who had been dead for four days and we're told that his body began to stink, in other words, he was undergoing... uh, Decay, his body was decaying. Even so, that dead man, he rose when he heard those words proceeding from the mouth of 
the Lord Jesus Christ, Lazarus, come forth. He rose up and he came out of the tomb. And presumably, those four days of decay had been reversed. The clock had been turned back. And Lazarus, he lived to tell the tale. Still on the subject of the voice of the Son of God, the day now is that people who are dead in their trespasses and sins are hearing the voice of the Son of God and they're being raised up to spiritual life in him. Anyone who's a Christian in here has that testimony that they have been raised up from spiritual death and the life that they now live in the flesh, they live by faith in the Son of God who loved them and who gave himself for them. Also the time will come at the end of the age when all who are in the grave will hear the voice of the Son of Man and they will rise up for judgment on that day when Jesus returns. What a day that will be. Everyone who has ever lived and who's dead in the grave, rising up from the dead to be judged by the righteous judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone. Have you heard the voice of the Son of God in the Scriptures? Has he spoken to you as as you've read the Scriptures or you've heard the preaching or, or, or maybe heard something in Sunday school or from your parents, I don't know. Have you heard the voice of the Son of God and has he raised you up from being dead in your sins to being alive forevermore in him? Do you have that testimony? Also, the person whom Daniel saw had a face like lightning, we're told here, in verse 6. However, concerning the Son of God, there was a time which is recorded in the Gospels when Jesus was transformed high up on a mountain and his face shone. It didn't shine like lightning, it shone like the sun. The Apostle John, who was on that mountain, later testified that he beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's Jesus, full of grace and truth. So, there are slight differences. Uh, Still, you may be thinking that I'm being a bit picky here, but um, bear with me, you'll see what I'm getting at as as we continue with this. I want us now to consider verses 10 through to 13. And I'm going to read them again for you. And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee, and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then said he unto me, Fear not, Daniel, for... From the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard and I am come for thy words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, 
one of the chief princes, came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. So, first of all, we see in verse 10 that a hand touched Daniel. That hand belonged to someone who was withstood by the prince of Persia for 21 days, according to verse 13. The thing is that if we insist that the heavenly person in verses 5 to 9 was none other than the pre-incarnate Son of God, we might now want to introduce another heavenly person in verse 10. Otherwise, what we're left with is the Son of God being withstood or opposed by the Prince of Persia, whoever he is, for 21 days, and then the Archangel Michael coming along to help him, to help the pre-incarnate Son of God, according to verse 13. Maybe that is what happened, I don't know, but I'm, I'm not convinced. At this point, I'm inclined to say that in answer to Daniel's praying and fasting for 21 days, three weeks, he was visited not by the Son of God in verse 5, but one of his one of his heavenly servants, a messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ, an angel, quite possibly the same angel who visited Daniel as he was still praying in chapter 9. On that occasion, Daniel was visited by Angel Gabriel. So maybe it was Angel Gabriel, that that very wonderful description that we have in those early verses there, in verse 5 onwards. It may well have been of an angel. That would be a sight to behold, seeing an angel. I want to focus on verse 13. I'll read it yet again. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Note that the angel who came to Daniel, I'm calling him an angel, you may disagree with me and say, well, actually it was the pre-incarnate Son of God, the angel who came to Daniel spoke of the prince of the kingdom of Persia at the beginning of verse 13, and then at the end of verse 13, he said, the kings of Persia. So are we looking at the the kings and princes of the royal family of Persia? Is that, that what's going on there? And maybe those princes, they're the sons of the kings of Persia? Well, let's have a look at that. As we shall continue in the next weeks to look at and consider the prophetic words words that were brought to Daniel in chapters 10 through to 12, it's important to understand that not only are there earthly kings, such as the kings of Persia, as we see at the end of verse 13, they are earthly kings, the kings of Persia, such as Artaxerxes and, and, uh, and all the others, But there are also spiritual princes or angels, some good and some bad. The bad ones are demons, evil spirits, but they are princes, spiritual princes. 
What we have in verse 13 is the prince of the kingdom of Persia. He is one of the bad guys, one of the bad spirits or demons. And he is an emissary of the prince of this world. Who is the prince of this world? The devil is the prince of this world. It would seem that over a three-week period, Gabriel, or whoever the good angel was, who visited Daniel in verse 5, had been opposed by a demon, when you look at verse 13 there, he'd been opposed by a demon, referred to as the prince of the kingdom of Persia, until such time that one of the chief angels, the archangel Michael, came to help him. That opposition happened during the three weeks that Daniel was fasting. Perhaps you can imagine how the evil spirit that was tasked by the devil with the responsibility of being the prince of the kingdom of Persia was keeping himself very busy doing so by influencing the the kings or rulers of Persia, getting into their minds so that they would listen to and act upon all those complaints of those annoying Samaritans who were getting in the way of the construction work in Jerusalem. The Samaritans were complaining to the kings of Persia and the kings of Persia uh, with these princes, these evil princes, spiritual princes, whispering in their ears. They were listening to what the Samaritans were saying and they were accommodating them with their complaints. And and consequently the work in Jerusalem, rebuilding Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple was greatly hindered. We know that to be the case from elsewhere in the Bible, that it was a long process, far longer than it should have been for various reasons. There were other reasons as well. Quite simply, a lot of the able men of uh, of Israel, they didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. They were firmly entrenched in the world, if you like. They had no interest in going back to Jerusalem. And then there were others, when they did get back to Jerusalem, they were too busy building their own houses to bother about building the temple again. You see that in Haggai the book of Haggai. So there were various reasons, but also one of the principal reasons is the Samaritans who were opposing the Jews and uh, in the building work. Let's understand very clearly that what we have been considering in this Old Testament passage and what we shall continue to read about in the, in the next couple of weeks is still being played out in a world, in this world, and it will continue to be the case until the end of time. Three times in John's Gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ referred to the devil as the prince of this world. We know this, but I think we need, when we hear things like this, we need to really think about it. What is Jesus saying there? Because that is big. It's massive. Calling the devil the prince of this world. He really is saying something big there. That the devil wields a lot of control in this world. 
The prince of this world has at his disposal an army of demons who wreak havoc in this world. We've already seen that in Daniel's time there was the prince of the kingdom of Persia. You see that in verse 13. And you can be sure that there is a prince of the United States of America. There is a prince of the United Kingdom. And there is a prince even of this little island that we live on. And all these princes are busy influencing, tempting our leaders. Who in turn, what do they do? They enact wicked laws. What's the next one that seems as if it's going to be enacted on our land? A law allowing assisted suicide. That's next, isn't it? It shouldn't surprise us. And if you can understand what's going on behind the scenes, maybe you'll understand why things are happening as they are. But if you come this evening, I don't want to digress again, but if you come this evening, at the end of the day, the buck does stop with us. We're tempted by the princes of this world, uh, the prince of this world, the devil, and all his underlings, all his army of princes. But at the end of the day, we are the ones who capitulate to these temptations. We conceive and we bring forth or give birth to sin. It's us all the way. And that is why God is righteous when he shall judge everyone in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the end of time as guilty sinners. Unless, of course, Jesus has borne your sins in his body at Calvary's cross. Otherwise, you are guilty as charged. Each one of you. Unless Jesus has taken the punishment in your place, having fulfilled the law's demands perfectly throughout his 33 years of being in the world. As for our little island here, yet, as I say, I don't know whether it's one prince, two princes, who knows how many princes, evil spirits, are waging influence, tempting our leaders, and not just our leaders, everybody on this island. And you can be sure that behind all the the, the idols of this island, and boy, aren't there a lot of idols, of false gods on this island, the, the, the false god of money and earthly riches, nothing wrong with those things until you start placing them above God in your affections. And behind all of those idols, there are demons. Let's be clear about that. Read it for yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. They're all over the place. The Apostle Paul even goes as far as to call the prince of this world the God of this world. Now isn't that something, the God of this world? And he explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4 that the God of this world have blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ who is the image of God, should shine unto them. I'm sure that all the demons who are in the world have a great part to play in the blinding of minds as they carry out their duties as princes of all the nations of this world. 
um, causing no end of damage and misery wherever they are. And of course the prince of of this world, he walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. We're told that in the New Testament. This world is a playground for the devil and his demons. The trouble is most people don't see it. Why is that? Because they're blinded. Utterly blinded. And sometimes I think Christians are half blind as well. And it, it, it makes you want to shake them almost. This is the world we live in. A wicked world. Can you see why it is that in Ephesians chapter 6, you don't have to turn to it, Ephesians chapter 6 verses 11 and 12, the Apostle Paul said, Put on the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand against the wiles, or the schemes, the evil schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. The principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, the spiritual wickednesses, wickedness in high places, that all refers to demonic forces. All of that refers to the devil and his demons. We wrestle with them. The world was and still is truly evil, dear friends. But the good news is that even though the God of this world have blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in their hearts, God is nevertheless making the light of the knowledge of his dear Son shine in sin-darkened hearts. Those hearts belong to people who hear the voice of his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They follow him, having shown repentance towards God. And there is nothing in this world that is able to separate them from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, his son. Are you someone who has been raised up? Has God made his light shine in your heart? your dark heart in the darkness of this world, you'll know the answer to that if you're following Jesus, if you know him as your saviour from sin. Then praise God, because he has made his light to shine in your heart. And the love of God for you, dear Christian, is a love that was manifested at the cross, where by his own death, another prince... Not the prince of this world, not these princes of Persia and, and, and all these other places, not these demonic princes, another prince, the prince of peace, Messiah the prince. He was lifted up to die and by his own death the prince of peace destroyed him who had the power of death, that is the devil. We live in, a, in very, very dark times, dear friends. Even so, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your saviour from sin and you will never perish. Amen.